Welcome to another episode of Green Grasses. Uh, we hope that you were encouraged by our last episode. Um, we interviewed John Anderson and talked about how the church began per Acts chapter 2 and, um, and why that matters to us today, why we look to that today. And today we are going to get more practical with the implications of um, what church looks like in our lives today, how we interact with it with our children, with our spouses, how we think about that, um, talk about different stages of life. So we would encourage you, if you haven't already, to go back and listen to our last podcast with John Anderson because we get to have him back today. Welcome back, John Anderson. Hey, thanks for having me back, guys. Um, and so we don't need to introduce him because we no. introduced him last episode. You can go back and listen to that if you would like to hear about that. It was super encouraging. And for our icebreaker today... Oh, or are you going to... You can do it. <laughs> okay, for her. Just take over. It's okay. <laughs> Carla, why don't you tell us our icebreaker today? <laughs> I thought it was going to be the Cameron show, <laughs> but no. Okay, so today we want to hear about your most significant injury and what you learned from it. So who wants to go first? <laughs> As I'm being looked at by <laughs> both of you. Um, you know, it's funny, the... In, in some ways, the most significant injury was probably tearing my ACL because of the connection to how the Lord used it in my conversion. But physically, I had a worse injury. Um, when I was in, uh, about 15 years old, I was, I was doing a roof with my dad. We were roofing this house, you know, just, um, just a residential roof, single-story home. Peak of the roof was about 16 feet, and um, we had shingled both sides, so we're at the peak, and I'm cutting the, uh, the, the tar paper uh, rolling across uh, to cover the to cover the last rows of shingles, um, to go underneath the last rows of shingles. So I'm I'm walking backwards like an idiot, um, cutting the, the 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 tar paper over to overlap, and I'm just concentrating on keeping a straight line, and literally just walked right off the roof. And so I fell off backwards. I don't even remember any of it. Um, my dad was he was doing something else. He he stands up and he's looking around and he and you're gone. He yeah I'm not there. Wait, so he wait, has, were you unconscious? Is that what happened? Yeah yeah oh. yeah. So he's looking was around it a the single roof. Single story. Single story home. Yeah and and so he's looking around like where did John go? Because he knew he knew I was on the roof and then all of a sudden I'm just gone. So he's looking around and where did where did John go? And so then he went over and looked over the edge oh. and he sees me laying there motionless. And he t he told me later he said. Going down the ladder, he he didn't know he didn't know if I was alive. Yeah. And I landed on concrete. Like <gasps> the top half of my body was on concrete. My legs were in grass. And so by the time he got around the ladder or down the ladder around the end of the house, uh, he he said I was he could hear me moaning. Oh. And so then uh, I I rolled over and you know I was just it was like blood everywhere. Oh. Uh, it was a mess. Uh, he he got me into the truck and you know this is. Rural Kansas, the closest hospital was 30 miles away. Oh my gosh! So, so like, there's no 911. There's no, no like paramedics. Well, yeah, there, there's a 911, and they would it would probably take an, you know half hour for them to get there, and then the, you know half hour to get back to the hospital. So he just drove me straight there. Oh my gosh! And uh, and I didn't, you know, I have about four hours of amnesia um, that I don't remember. And my first conscious memory was was in the CAT scan, and I heard them talking about the the brain scan, and so. Because what I remember thinking is like, I'm in a CAT scan. And, and, and my, my thought was, don't open your eyes or you'll go blind. And so it was like, it was like I'm, I'm not even like making sense at this point, but that was like the first thing I remember. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I uh, you know, broke, snapped, snapped my arm, totally snapped it in half. It just, you know, uh, my teeth went through my lips. So I had stitches on the inside, outside of the lip. My head was my head swelled up about the size of a basketball. You know, and I had I had cuts and scrapes all over, cracked a rib, and 
So it was a it was a pretty big mess. And um, I'd say that's a significant it, injury. It was it was significant, yeah. Uh, although it's funny because once I got in the cast, I had a cast up to my shoulder, and then got out of the hospital, you know, a couple hours later, and then took about you know a thousand milligrams of Tylenol, went to a movie with my friends. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah, like an idiot. And then halfway through the how, movie, how old were you? You I were was like 14 or 15. 14, 15. Yeah. And then halfway through the movie, I felt like dying. So I was regretting being there. But, but yeah, it was interesting in God's providence. When I started thinking about my hostility to God, I thought back to that incident. And I realized God should have snuffed me. I, I, I should have snapped my neck and I would be in hell right now appropriately. Like God would be right to have sent me to hell when I fell off that roof. So it was, you know, fresh in my mind, even with my... Mm-hmm. conversion story that I told you. Would you say that something you learned from that injury was how to not do roofs? Was that uh, yes. among the yeah, things you learned? Yeah, that would be certainly among them. How, how not to do roofs, um, how, how not to do plastic surgery. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Okay. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea when I asked that question it was going to be that dramatic. <laughs> oh, my. Falling off roofs. Falling off roofs. Well, you fell off a cliff. I don't know if that's the one you're going to share. Would you like to share it now? Sure. <laughs> So I really just have the one injury, I think, because I don't because I hadn't ever broken a bone until until I fell off a cliff. So, right, I've shared this before. I'll be brief. I had been married for three months, and my husband and I were hiking in Box Canyon in Payson, Arizona, and it was raining, and we were just following this river down with our friend Joel, like at the bottom of the canyon. And uh, we come to this place, you know, you come to this place and there's water on one side and there's rocks on the other. Is the water deep enough? Can we just jump in? Uh, Or should we just go down the rock side? And so we come to this cliff. It's like 25 feet down. Matt and Joel go to look at the water side and I decide I can just scale down the cliff. And I I couldn't. Spoiler alert. Couldn't. (laughs) I can fall down the cliff. I put my feet out on this ledge and my fingertips on a ledge and I slipped. So... The whole way down, I was just, as the rocks were scraping my face, I had some time to think, you know, as I was falling. I did. It was was a little bit like time slowed down. And I just was like, this is such a stupid way to die, you know, because I was pretty sure. I knew knew it was bad. And then I hit, I shattered my talus, my ankle, um, crushed it to the point of really removing, effectively removing all the cartilage. And then I shattered my wrist. I knocked, and then I knocked diamonds out of my ring. And then I hit my head. That was so wonderful because it totally could have been the other way around. But I got the wind knocked out of me super hard. So for about 60 seconds or so, like I couldn't breathe. You know, so I just, so Matt, my husband just saw me fall and I'm just motionless. So he was pretty sure I was dead. Hmm. And our poor friend Joel, Matt's like, go get help. And Joel really thought I was dead because Joel didn't ever see me get up. So Joel had to hike out of that whole canyon and flag down a car and call 911. Um... And so then I, I, you know, I get my breath back and I was laying there and I was looking at the water trickling by when I couldn't breathe because I thought I was dying. And I was like, Lord, if you have any purpose for me, keep me alive. And if you don't just let me die, Mm. felt fine about it. Um, And then I got my breath back and I was like, (gasps) and then I looked down and I saw my ankle and it was just, it was a compound fracture. It was pretty gross. Mm. And so, and Mm. then I screamed and then Matt was like, she's alive, you know? And then Matt takes off his she's like hold on the man takes off his shoes throws them down to me and scales the cliff i just fell down no problem what is that what is that i don't know it's adrenaline it's ridiculous is what it is i thought you were gonna say it's salt in an open wound (laughs) yeah i mean come on you know so five hours later search and rescue got to us duct taped me into a stretcher Mm. 
assembled some massive rope and pulley system of all 600 feet of canyon, hauled me 25 feet at a time, like vertically out of the canyon. I was pretty sure they were going to drop me at some point, but they didn't. And so now I just have severe arthritis, and it's great. And something I learned from it was that I was in a wheelchair for three months. It was this very difficult first year of marriage, and we got pregnant like the next month while I was still in the wheelchair, and we didn't do it very well at all. We stopped reading our Bibles, not on purpose, but just because we were overwhelmed by our circumstances, and so a lot of sin got into our marriage, and when everything came tumbling down, it was just so, it was so kind. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for that year of marriage because we learned that you just, you can't stop reading God's word when you're in the middle of a trial. You can't stop doing that because, um, gosh, you know, be killing sin or, or sin will be killing you, right? Mm-hmm. So we just learned that we, we need to stay close to the word of God, to truth when we're in the middle of a trial. And those lessons that we learned that year, we called to mind a long time after that when we were in the middle of another trial. So I'm so grateful. Trials are so kind of the Lord to grow us and teach us things that we wouldn't learn any other way. And he was so kind so early on in our marriage to grow us and show us our weakness. Mm. So that, mm-hmm. that's my significant injury. I wish I had something new for the listeners at home, but I don't. I've also never been stung by a bee. Wow. Huh. Yeah. I've been stung by a bee. It was very painful. Is it? Yeah. Well, where I was stung, I was stung on my toe. Oh, it hurts so bad. But that's not my significant injury, although I don't have a near-death experience like you two. So, well, as near to death as you guys got, I didn't get anywhere near that with my most significant injury. But it was um, not in the United States. So I was 19 years old, and I was visiting my family in Guatemala. I hadn't been there since I was like five so my family is really excited to have me come visit, and they plan this trip to the coast. There's a whole story that goes with how we got to the coast, and um, it's kind of funny because it's Guatemala, you know, and it's, <laughs> you just travel. It takes you seven hours to go what should only take, like, one. So um, anyway, we get to the coast, and I had never, I had never been around beach water that was warm or, like, dark sand and it was night and I couldn't see anything Mm. so I ran to the water because it was hot and it was tropical you know very warm what I didn't notice is that there were these like wooden sticks sticking out and as I ran like one like got went into my knee oh yeah and it was like blood starts coming down and it was I was, I just, I just remember looking like, where did these wood sticks come from? And when I look, they're like all along the whole coast. And so I'm like, oh my gosh. Then my cousins are like, oh no, like, oh no, what are we going to do? And then we're in this really tropical area where my cousins were like, you can't go to a doctor here. Mm-hmm. It's 98 degrees, super tropical, super humid. Oh, yeah, it's you like you, you, what they're going to like stick you with a needle that you're that's going to get infected. So my little grandma, who was in her 90s, who I don't know why, I don't know if all Guatemalans do this, but she always carried rubbing alcohol with her everywhere she went. I don't know why. But my cousins were like, we're going to have to clean that. And the only thing we had was my grandma's rubbing alcohol. So I was like, okay, this is going to hurt. So they get my grandma's little alcohol bottle and they pour it over the wound. I still feel the pain. Like, 
It hurts so bad. But I knew I have to clean it. I cannot leave it like this. I don't know what was in that piece of wood. I don't even know if I have pieces of wood in my knee. You know, I still have some scars from it because it was a pretty open wound. But I remember that alcohol getting poured over my knee, and it just hurt so, mm. so bad. Um, but so thankful that my little grandma had rubbing alcohol with her because I knew that it was clean, and I knew that um, it would be okay. And I just thought it was so interesting that my cousins were like, you can't go to a doctor here. Like, <laughs> you can't. Do you think your grandma carried rubbing alcohol with her because she knew? She, she knew about Guatemala and injuries and, and the environment? I don't know, but when she would come to visit, she always had it oh. in her purse. I don't know. You know, if she was alive, maybe I would still ask her. I would ask her now, because now I'm like, why? But maybe I'll ask my mom. I don't know. But I was just so thankful for the rubbing alcohol, and I was just, um, it, it was, and then the next day, we were going to this water park, and we just went to the water park, and it was great. And I hadn't really thought about that injury, you know? I mean, it was just one of those things that kind of a funny thing that happened while I was visiting my family. I don't know that I have a big lesson from it, but, well, my family loves me. My grandma loves me because she carried rubbing alcohol with her. So it's just kind of a, you know, kind of a, kind of random and now I have to just not run to the beach in the dark when I don't know what's around me. So I could trip wow. over things that stab my knee. That's a good that is a good lesson, Carla. In fact, I, uh, I'd have to say that, would have, that I would have expected, if that happened to me, the lesson that I would have learned is probably that it would be worth amputation than to have to go through that experience. Oh. <laughs> like, this is it not hurts. worth it. I know. Why are you pouring alcohol right. on my knee? I know, right? The, yeah, I, that hurt. I have, not, I have not felt pain like that. It, was, it, was, it hurt. I still remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When, when we were in Papua New Guinea, um, my friend Cass almost chopped her finger off with a, with a knife cutting a sweet potato because the sweet potatoes there are just ridiculously hard. Have, have I told this story before? You've told me the story. Oh. I don't think you've told our listeners the story. <laughs> anyway, and so, you know, you're in a village, like helicopter access only. You're not going to get anywhere. And so we had to, um, uh, the guys were like, okay, we'll, we'll go away. And then so I, we, I had to pull her finger apart, and we had a bunch of saline. And I had to mm. pull it because it was almost, you know, it was, it was pretty deep. Pull it apart, flush it out with that saline. I don't even remember her taking a Tylenol. I don't know. She, and then we just super glued it back together, just a little bit of super glue, and then just a wrap. She was fine. Wow. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yikes. Okay. Impressive. Now that we've talked about our significant injuries, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're going to go ahead and get started with our questions. So we're going to transition into our serious topic. Okay. So if you listened to the last podcast, we talked about how the church started, uh, how God works in the church, how he established the church, a little bit about why it's important. And so this episode, we're going to talk about how... Um, just how do we how do we serve in the church? And we're going to make it a little bit more practical. John's going to share a little bit uh, from his own perspective as a husband, as a um, as a father, and as a pastor. Uh, so we get all three perspectives from him, which is great. So our first question is John from a father and husband perspective. How do you teach your family, and how do you lead your family, um, and teach them about the church? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and I think the uh, you know going back to where we were at 
last last time talking about what's what's being modeled by the church the same thing applies here it's kind of like what are we modeling as parents to our kids um it, it never ceases to amaze me when i see parents raising kids and they find themselves in the teenage years and they find themselves when life starts to get a little more complicated and they start realizing man our kids need answers and they need to be they, they need to they need to see truth they they suddenly start inserting you know they start looking for how can we help what can we do to, to shore up the problem and then all of a sudden church like suddenly becomes a priority and for a child growing up in a home who suddenly church becomes a priority because of all these problems that just came into their life. Suddenly the evening service and suddenly equipping hours start to become part of their life because, you know, it's just like if that hasn't been the priority all along, then that, that models something to the kids. Mm. That models, the parents are modeling that, um, hey, as long as things are going fine, you know, just minimal effort is okay. If it's really bad, then maybe, yeah, we need more. And so it's just, it's almost like a medication to try to get the best results um, possible. So, you know, I think what's, int- what's important is, is the number one, that mom and dad or the parents uh, have to model a love for the church. Like the, the, the real question is, is um, do, do mom and dad love the church? Do they love serving in the church? Do they sacrifice for it? Um, am I going to give up something for it? Am I going to use my gifts in the church? Um, you know, kids are going to know why you're serving. They're going to know why you're making the decisions you're making. They're going to know what you prioritize in your calendar. Um, I, I think a lot of times, at the, in the, even in the toddler years, even before you get to the teenage years, in the toddler years, you, sometimes you see people who are, are even prioritizing the church as young marrieds because it doesn't really cost anything. There's, no, there's, no, you know, mm-hmm. there's just a minimal level of responsibility. Suddenly, the toddler years come along, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, no, we can't be at this ministry event. We can't be a part of this because we've got all these needs, and everything just wraps around their kids. Mm-hmm. And that's a challenging – this is a very delicate I'm, – I'm introducing a very delicate conversation here. Mm-hmm. The reason why it's delicate is, obviously, Christ has called us to be faithful, and he's given us commands that pertain to the church. He's given us commands that pertain to our marriage. He's given us commands that pertain to our children. So when a, when a parent is making a decision, they, they have to be faithful – as a Christian, as a dad or mom, as you know, in, in all those hats that we would wear, we've got to be faithful to all of those things. So I'm introducing a delicate conversation because I'm trying to highlight there's a, there's a real importance of remaining church-centric in our own thinking. But that can sound like, to, some, to somebody, it can sound, oh, it sounds like you're just neglecting children. Um, and so when I'm, when I'm concerned about, when, when, when as, as a, if I'm thinking about my life as a dad, um, if I get concerned about being child-centric, that would be when um, I'm, I'm refusing to flex my schedule or even incur challenge into our home in order to meet the needs in the church. That's when I think that child-centric uh, parenting becomes a danger because now there's compromise being introduced. Um, so I wouldn't want somebody, I wouldn't want a mom hearing this, uh, you know, especially like a, a mom with a young, with a young toddler who's, they've got nap times, they've mm-hmm. got like schedules and all these other things that they're trying to think through. And they know that if they are serving in all these ministries and they're keeping their kids up at someone, so-and-so's house until 10 PM, just to try to meet, you know, to disciple mm-hmm. and, and all of that, that suddenly, you know, they could find themselves with a real challenge. Like they've been neglectful as a parent and that actually wasn't wise. There might be some idolatry about being perceived a certain way in the church that mm-hmm. would be equally wrong. 
So we've got to be careful when we think about these things, child-centric versus church-centric in our, in our scheduling and that sort of thing. But April and I, we, from, from the very get-go, you know, we, we just knew our, our, our lives are in the church. We're, we're committed to this. Um, and, and my life as a pastor, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm paid to be singularly devoted to the church. So that's not the standard. That's, that's not um, where, where most of your listeners are going to be at trying to think through this dynamic. But when it comes to how do we raise kids and serve in the church, we didn't want there to be a season where our kids like suddenly realized like all of a sudden things just went from radically focused on them to now all of that's getting taken away so that we can go serve the church. And it's like, what in the world? Like we used to get things our way and now all of a sudden it's all about the church. Like this is lame. I hate the church. Mm -hmm. So we wanted them to grow up from, from the get go, just knowing, yeah, your part, like we, we serve in the church. That's a priority for us. And we're going to flex to meet those needs. Sometimes we don't get food at the time that we would want. And sometimes we, you do have to go down for sleep at someone else's house. And you don't have an option because these are, this is a priority. And so, you know, when I hear all of these excuses like, well, we can't serve because our kids don't do that. It's like, well, no, you just don't do that. Like, you, everybody's making a decision about what's important, what's the priority. We all have the same amount of time. And you should be saying no to ministry opportunities if you have kids because you've got to be faithful. You've got to be a parent. And you don't want to, you want to be faithful to the Lord. But I, I do see the tendency more often than not, it seems like people distance themselves out of ministry involvement when um, children come along, just simply because of the difficulty, because of tiredness, and, and all of that. And so when, when my service to the church is only when there's no cost, then that's, not, that, that's actually proving that it's not that I love the church that much, it's just only when it's convenient. Mm-hmm. So we, we wanted our kids to see that. We wanted to see, like, okay, yeah, like, so we're meeting a need, and now I'm, like, they, 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 they'll joke about how long it takes me to get out of church. You know, it's like, it's like, hey, it's time to go. And they know where I'm standing. Like, if I say that over by the book table, they're like, oh, okay, book table to car? That's 45 minutes for that. <laughs> if it says that by the front door, maybe it's only 12 minutes, you know? Yeah. So, so, you know, there's an, they joke about that. It's just a, it's a joke in our, in our home. It's just they just know this is important, and that's just that's a privilege. Like, they shouldn't – we, we got to show them the privilege of those sacrifices, and they shouldn't be thinking, like, I hate that my dad's a pastor. He could take some 45 minutes to get out of church. Yeah. He should be, they should be thinking, like, that's a privilege that he gets to help people. Um, but yeah, yeah, okay. It's gonna. We, he's he's gonna as my best he can. You know, push off conversations he can, and we got something that's a priority. You know, if it's if it's a deadline, if somebody's got a game, I'll just tell people. Oh, look, contact me. Well, we gotta, I gotta go. I'm not negligent as a pastor to have to be a faithful dad. Yeah. But they need to know that the world doesn't revolve around them. Yeah. So I think that's an important principle. Mm-hmm. Um, so like someone that comes to you, you know, they realize they're not loving the church the way they should. Okay. You know, they're not committed to the church, and they want to just. Um, grow in their love for the church. You know, where do you start encouraging someone's heart? It says, I want to be committed, but, um, you know, I'm busy. Or I think about, like, maybe someone with a career that maybe doesn't have kids and they travel a lot. Or, you know, mm-hmm. things like that mm-hmm. where you're like, I know I need to be committed. Um, where would you or how would you encourage someone to kind of spur on that love for the church and a desire to be connected and to be committed? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's going to have to start. You know, when, when you think about biblical instruction about love for the church, it's really helpful to even think of specifics. First John 5, uh, well, First John, the whole epistle, is, mm-hmm. is so much about the love of the brethren. But when you see what happens there, it's just, it, it's, it's, if, if I really am serious about growing in my love for the church, I have to be aware of the tendency of my own heart to, to like things the way that they are, and it's going to cost me mm-hmm. to actually grow in my love for the church. So the way John says it is, 
how can you, you know, what good is it to say that you love your father whom you can't see if you don't love your brother whom you can see? You know, it's like, if I claim that I love God and I'm devoted to Christ, that, that there's really no proof of that. Tangibly, what would that be? Unless it's tangibly played out in my love for those who have also been begotten by the Lord. So now I've got spiritual siblings. We have the same spiritual DNA because we were begotten by the same father. And if, if I can't love them because they call me in, in opportune times and because meeting those needs are costly and because uh, their breath stinks and because it's just inconvenient and because it's just the list gets, goes, goes on and on. Um, that's going to be the real test of how much do I love Christ? Am I doing this because I get something out of it? Or do, am I doing this because Christ is worthy of that kind of worship? So my encouragement to them would be, you've got to just find ways to get involved in the body. You've got to find ways to cultivate relationships. You've got to find ways to meet needs. And just you've got to be busy meeting the needs of others. When you're in isolation, here's what happens. In isolation, we're not created to live in isolation, right? Proverbs 18.1, he who separates himself seeks his own desires. And that's true in the church. That's true in life. That's, just, that's with Solomonic wisdom. But that's true especially in the church. If I isolate myself, I'm seeking my own desires, I, I start to become an echo chamber to myself, I start being aware of my own needs, and I start thinking about my own needs. When I'm immersed in the body of the church, there's so many other needs that I need to be meeting, and there's something, there's something uh, so sanctifying about putting yourself in the church and immersing yourself in the needs of others to the degree that you don't even really have time to think about your own needs. Um, uh, I, remember, I remember Pastor MacArthur saying this when I was in seminary, he just said, I'm so, I have so many needs to meet that I don't even have time to look at my own. If I have needs that aren't being met, I just have to assume that the Lord's going to meet those needs through the body. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking how selfless that is. Like, it's just like literally like, well, I've got these needs, and what about me? Who cares about me? Die to self. Mm -hmm. Consider the needs of others more important than yourself. That's Christ-likeness. That's where I need to live. I, if I cultivate that self-absorption, I'm, I'm actually going to kill my love for the church. So I would just tell those people, just find ways to serve, find ways to meet needs. Um, you know, the person, sometimes that, that question comes from somebody who's just the Lord stirring up by way of desire mm -hmm. and you just need to give them uh, some direction, some real practical opportunity. Sometimes that, that can't comes from people who are sitting there saying like, pastor, why am I not teaching or why am I not in leadership or why am I not? So there's an element where, um, just immersing yourself in needs, finding a way to meet those needs, even being willing to meet needs that you don't even aren't particularly skilled for. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's so healthy. Like, we would not be useful to the Lord if we only met needs in the areas where we were really gifted. Mm -hmm. um, being able to meet needs where you really struggle is a good reminder. Like, man, I am so can't wait for somebody else to come along who has this gift. Yeah. And then they come, and you're like, thank you. <laughs> you know, for the sake of the people I'm trying to meet their yeah. needs, that's yeah. your benefit to them. And that's just humbling and necessary. It reminds us that uh, none of us are have all yeah. the gifts. Yeah. Do you primarily lead, when you're actually instructing your children about the church, do you primarily lead, do you think, by example? Or are there times where you sit down and you talk with them about it again? Like, you know, I mean, I understand you are a pastor, so your yeah. family's been walking this walk for a long time in a really specific way. Um, but, yeah, are there times of where, like, maybe a child's having a hard time with it or anything like that? Have you ever yeah. had to talk a child through that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, and it's both and. Um, you know, the terms that I tend, I tend to use maybe, and I think this would probably be, common terms around here, you know, just reactionary versus proactive, mm -hmm. um, proactive parenting and reactive parenting. When you see, when you see a kid's response to the truth and to the church, you, you, you want to react with truth. That's, that's a necessary part of parenting. And when you're not seeing them react, you want to be proactive with truth. Mm -hmm. That's a necessary part of parenting. 
And, um, and so it's interesting, like, if, if, if I see, you know, like, if I see a kid, like, I remember one kid saying to me, I think they were eight, if I remember right, I think they were eight at the time. And dad, we're like, I'm like, I'm like telling the kids get ready to go. Like, you know, it was one of those Sundays I, I used to have leadership meetings or, or meetings around 430 and then we'd have PM service at six. Mm-hmm. And so that was like an every other week leadership meeting every week PM service. So half the Sundays I would be there until the evening service. We'd all go together. Mm-hmm. So one of those particular Sundays, I tell the guys, I tell the boys, okay, guys, clean up. We're going to get dressed, you know, get dressed. We're going to go to church. You know, they're playing outside or whatever. They're a mess and that sort of thing. And it's just like this dumbfounded look from one of them. What, what, we already went to church. And I'm like, son, you are nine years old. I think you're eight. You were eight years old. And we've gone to church every evening of your life. Like, what do you mean? Like, we already went to church. We go to church twice a Sunday, every Sunday. Like, that's just a part of life, you know? Uh-huh. And so there's an element where it's like you're, you're able to, you know, you can tell this is intruding in my mud pie or whatever uh-huh. I'm doing over here. Um, you know, and so as, as you start to see their heart come out, you're able to just kind of highlight, you know, um, like, in other words, how mom and dad think about the church is how your kids are going to think about the church. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we've worked hard, you know, like there's, there is a cost at times to being a pastor. And um, April and I've tried to work hard on highlighting the privilege of that. And there's also a flexibility that I have. If I had an eight to five job, sure. you know, there's certain things. If you had do. an eight to five job, you can do a podcast with us today. That's true. That's a good point, Carla. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't be. You'd have right. to be some office, some office cubicle. Who knows? Who knows? So it'd be like at, like seven o'clock at night or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, considering different people and their different stages in life, what what would you tell? And maybe we've already covered this a little bit. Um, are there any specific stages of life that you think might need more help with this and instructing their own hearts um, with the priority mm. of the local church? Or yeah, that's a great question. Like if I, I don't, when I worked for a long time, or I didn't get married until I was almost thirty, you know, and so I kind of focused on a career for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so there's as a single woman, where is a single woman fit mm-hmm. in the, mm-hmm. being committed to the church? Mm-hmm. You know. Just as an example. Yeah, yeah. So, and those are, you know, what I love about the question is um, there are challenges to any circumstance uh, that you have to think through. What's interesting about, like, thinking is there any particular circumstance, demographic, stage of life, development, uh, level of responsibility that is going to be uh, uniquely tempting? I would say no. Mm -hmm. Um, And I hope that doesn't sound like um, off-putting to somebody who has tremendous responsibility and tremendous demands in their life. Um, but the, the reality is it, the, 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 it's always a hard issue. Mm-hmm. Like the hard issue, the temptations that are going to keep me away from the church are, are just, they're going to be common to man temptations. Mm-hmm. And the person who's, the, 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 the guy who is a, uh, he's in the workforce, he's got a wife, he's got kids, and he's got his hands full, and every, basically every major category of responsibility, let's say he's got them all. Um, and he's sitting there, and he's just kind of sitting there saying, yeah, see, like, I mean, I'm just trying to be faithful to the Lord in all these areas. And you look at how, you look at how he uses his calendar. Um, there, it comes down to, you know, why are you saying yes to all that you're saying? Yeah. You know, why are you saying yes to all that you're saying? And sometimes, you know, that's, that's revealing, like, the temptation there is I get significance out of 
having my life put together, showing up in a nice, nice car, and I'm, up, I'm in the upper crust of the middle class, and then I have this nice suit, and then I, my family, you know, all the little ducklings following me into church. I look like a leader. I got it together. I'm influential at the workplace. I'm making my company more profitable. But, you, Pastor, if I were to slow down and start obeying all these one another's, you realize I wouldn't be at the pay scale that I'm at. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be in the higher. I wouldn't have moved up in the company the way I have. Mm-hmm. And and so there's it's like suddenly you start realizing, yeah, there were decisions made. I mean, because honestly, if you are going to be more profitable for a company, it takes it requires more responsibility. Yeah. And and we're created to have responsibility. So I'm not going to fault a guy who's excelling and he loves using those resources for the sake of the gospel. That's essential. But I am going to fault a guy if he's doing it for the sake of significance and then it's in and it's down reducing compromise for his involvement in the church. Mm-hmm. So we've got to think about those things because we are not going to, and I've said, I've said this, to guys, this to guys this way, you're not going to regret from the vantage point of 10,000 years into eternity, you're not going to regret looking back at a career of you know, being the vice president as opposed to the president and I made an extra $20,000 uh, less to be a core contributing Christian to my local church. Mm-hmm. You'll never regret that decision. Um, so make those decisions not on you're based on retirement. Based, make those decisions based on ten thousand years into eternity, and you have a better perspective. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say that you you got to think about it um, from an eternal minded you know perspective. But so to your question, to your second question, then what about each individual you know kind of demographic? It is interesting. Um, churches kind of take on a, a different feel at times depending on who's there, and um, you know this church. Um, started young and became older due to faithful preaching of the word. It started as a college Bible study, and then it, then the demographic is now expanding to reflect more faithfully the the you know the community around it. it looks mm-hmm. more like Tempe twenty years after preaching the word than it did as it, when it started as a college Bible study. Mm-hmm. Uh, the former church that I was at was uh, primarily an older church, mm-hmm. and uh, the pastor who came there four years before me uh, was there was a lot of uh, older. Older, older folks in the church. When I came there, we didn't even have a college ministry. I was just mm-hmm. doing some high school students, and, and we started a college ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then faithful preaching over the last 20 years has made it more younger. Mm-hmm. So it's like in, in both contexts, faithful uh-huh. preaching of the word has extended the demographic of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's just interesting in some, you know, in, in those in those churches, it can kind of take on the feel of, of who's there. And so if if you're a, like a an empty nester in a church that was started by a college Bible study, uh-huh, you yeah. can feel a little bit like a, yeah. you know, um, out, out of, like a duck, a duck out of water. Actually, a duck feels really comfortable in it. Um, <laughs> out of water, in water. Um, and I so, same, same with, you know, same with uh, my former church, you know, it's like the collegians felt like I don't belong here because it's just, it was primarily a church of gray hairs. And so uh-huh. then that, you know, just yeah. so in- interesting. Um, when you, when you go back to the scriptures, you realize that if you're saved, you're to, you're to contribute to the church. Mm-hmm. Like your salvation means you are a benefit to that church, regardless. Regardless, regardless of whether of you feel like you're demog- not yeah. in the demographic right. that's, that's common exactly in that right. church. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. In fact, all the more so if you find yourself a 28 year old single woman mm-hmm. in a church that's primarily married. Yeah. Um, all the more you're needed. Because you bring something that they don't have, and you bring not only your own unique gifting, which is common to married, single, um, you know, empty nester, whatever, uh, but also just a young perspective and, and youth and, and energy. Um, the older generation has wisdom, regardless of gifting. They're going to have wisdom and life experience that the youngest generation doesn't. So the 22-year-old who just got saved yeah. is, needs the 80-year-old. 
-hmm. And the 80-year-old needs the 22-year-old who's got all that energy and zeal. Um, the energy and zeal are, are something that are irreplaceable for the church. And, and, and the, the mutual benefit there, it's, it's, we're kind of getting outside of the discussion of spiritual gifting and looking at what God does by bringing those different perspectives mm -hmm. to the church. It's for the benefit of the church. Yeah. Well, we have time for one more question. Okay. And this is one for someone who may not have an ideal situation. You know, we know it starts in our hearts, it starts in our homes. But what if our homes are not ideally um, Christian, like mm -hmm. an unbelieving spouse? Mm -hmm. um, how does someone in that situation instill this in their children, or even if there's no children, how is that spouse faithful to fulfill their responsibility to the church when there may not be as much support in the home mm -hmm. or, or even active hostility in the home yeah yeah right yeah that does make it difficult and and it even becomes more difficult with children um in a home that's uh when in marriage that's um unequally yoked um it, 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 there's there's a challenge there in in my experience i mean obviously i've never I've never, my, April got saved before I got it's married. It's not personal but experience. But in my pastoral experience, <laughs> <laughs> um, it is interesting to see some of the common temptations in that dynamic. Mm -hmm. One of the most common temptations is to feel like I am in a lose-lose situation. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is if I'm married to somebody who does not love the Lord and I'm trying to be faithful to the Lord and faithful to my spouse, it feels like I'm, it's a tug-of-war. Mm -hmm. And those two loyalties are running opposite, in 180 degrees opposite of one another. Mm -hmm. So now loyalty to both at the same time can feel impossible. Mm -hmm. And so what's important in that kind of dynamic is just going back and renewing our minds biblically. So you just kind of pause and just say, let's step back. Why do you feel this tension? What's, 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 really, what's, what's, the, what, what, what's your mission here? How, how do you glorify God and serve your spouse when they are running 180 degrees opposite of one another? And, um, and there's, this, is, this is a long conversation, but the short answer where I would start with, uh, with that person would be 1 John um, 5, 2, and 3. This is a helpful verse for thinking about the, the dynamic that we create for ourselves when we feel like we're in a lose-lose. Because what John does for us here is he shows that actually there's no tension for, for you personally. There might be a tension between your spouse and God, but there's no t tension for you and your loyalty toward them. You need to love both. Wow, it sounds impossible. It's actually not. Look, listen to verse 2 and 3. For by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Mm -hmm. So now what that does is there, it starts to liberate us a little bit um, because we start realizing my job is to love God. The tension is not a real tension. It's, an, it's a perceived tension because I start to feel like, well, if I love God and obey him unconditionally, that's going to incur more hostility from my spouse. And then they're going to say, well, why don't you love me? Mm -hmm. And your answer is, actually, this is, obeying God is the most loving thing I can do for you mm -hmm. because this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Mm -hmm. So now obedience to the Lord is the most loving thing you can do even for an, uh, an unsaved spouse. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, people in that situation, you have the privilege of, of modeling the gospel in a way that a, a two Christians don't because you, the other person is actually enslaved to self-love and self-worship. And for you to love them sacrificially and selflessly is Christ-like. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Which is, which is 
I mean, the, it just reminds me of the last episode, which we were talking about being set apart, right? Like being lo- looking different than the world. You mm-hmm. have these priorities and you hold fast to them because you ha- you're obeying something greater than mm-hmm. anything else in your life, right? And, and you look different because you're doing that. And that's actually a testimony. That's a witness to what, what, what has transpired in your heart. Right, right. Yeah. Well, we've run out of time. <laughs> so we're going to wrap it up. Thank you, John, for coming and sharing your heart with us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, both times. Both times, and uh, I was really encouraged, you know. Good, good. And well, those are, those are great questions, and, and I, I can tell even as you're asking them, like, th- th- it's going to be just super, hopefully super helpful mm-hmm. for your listeners because yeah. these are really, really pertinent questions. These yeah. are the questions we're asking just in normal body life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, you know, sometimes I think we wonder, like, what's the will of God for my life? The will of God for my life is that I would be faithful in his mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, it just makes things so clear when, you know, my, the will of God for my life is to love God, is to obey his word, mm-hmm. is to be faithful in this church. Mm-hmm. And so thank you for sharing that with us. And so we want to remind you of things that are eternal once again. So as you go about your week, uh, we'll leave you with Isaiah 48. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thank you for listening. <laughs>